I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end it's a story but that's why i'm here to tell you stories so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr it's happening i can feel it how would you explain it it's beautiful god it's god i see god how do you like that why it's preposterous thank you very much Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy all our sensory systems. and then it explodes into this enormous collage of what this present moment looks like, what it feels like, and what it sounds like. Sojourn Zenith. She's an earth poet, edge weaver, attuning to primordial nourishment through the nervous system, creative expression, and relationship to wider ecosystemic bodies of support. Her practice weaves together learnings from somatics, animism, constellations, poetics, field perception, clowning, grief ritual, and systems intelligence. She offers group and one-on-one sessions and consulting through her website, earthpoetedgeweaver.com, and is currently completing Long Body Prayers, a book of ego-poetic essays to accompany an animist oracle deck co-created with the oracular guidance of ecological beings and deep-time ancestors. So at the beginning, you start by saying that we start without words for only the silence listens and it begins with absence a pause 
a womb or empty void. And then the only medicine for the place of aching is to nestle your body into the shape of the absence and make your body the prayer that resonates from a depth of soul and become the portal back home. So talk about that and this notion of the long body, which I just love that that concept mm. and the language of it. And then, of course, bringing it into this thing of make of actually making our body the prayer. Mm. To kind of feel in and listen for what's to move. When I began this particular journey of turning towards my body and turning towards my own system, there was just a sense of wanting to be able to feel more at ease and feel a sense of home. And I was starting to have the realization that I spent so much of my life kind of in, in spaces of bracing and feeling very unsupported and very overwhelmed. And so this kind of journey that has happened started for me with starting to um, explore ritual, especially grief ritual, as I was noticing just all of kind of the unmetabolized material that was running through my system. And then also started with listening to nature beings and having experiences of hearing their voices from the same place that my poetry would come from. So it feel like it, it wasn't, wasn't my conscious mind, but the, there were um, voices and words coming through me from other beings. And I would have those kind of peak experiences of feeling that sense of belonging, but my baseline kind of moving through the world as a, a nervous system was still a lot of just kind of effort and feeling feeling like I didn't didn't belong, that there wasn't just kind of a baseline ease of existing. And so a lot of what I'm exploring, which is both the thing that is the closest in, in terms of being able to be with my body, be with my system, the like micro impulses for movement, the the sense of yes and no. And then also at the same time is kind of the widest attunement to, to relationship with ancestors, with the land, that there's sort of a whole shifting perceptual process and tissueing process of coming back into relationship with this, this sense of the long body and this sense of all of the things that don't fit in the, the little box of kind of cognitive awareness that the culture tells us is, is how humans are supposed to be shaped. And you wrote that from an early age, we learned that what's most precious to us is disregarded and even rejected by the human community around us and how our nervous systems then learn to limit our ability to perceive love and to connect with other human beings and, and even to connect with that part of ourselves, that precious, essential part of ourselves. Yeah, and I think that phrase, our nervous system can limit 
our ability to perceive love as the primordial foundation of reality is the shaping force of, of this whole project. This sense that, you know, we have the, the cultural narrative of love coming from specific other human bodies, you know, and sometimes from inside of ourselves. But there's a perceptual shifting that I've experienced in the somatic work and the ritual work where that sense of love as this primordial nourishment, this belonging, this ability to just be and exist as an organism in the whole ecosystem of, of other organisms, that that is the thing that humans who have been touched by colonization have lost, is just that fundamental ease of existing, which doesn't mean that you know there isn't trauma, there isn't pain. It just means that there's a sense that you get to matter and you get to exist in a body and follow the impulses of your organism. And that's the thing that over many, many generations for my like, colonist kin has been kind of contorted so that we're further and further away from just that, that sense of what it means to be an organism embedded in an ecosystem of other organisms. And our culture prioritizes the constant activation of our sympathetic nervous system, always like go, 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 achieve, achieve, achieve. And that runs completely counter to what you're talking about and what you're aspiring to and wanting to move back toward with this work. Yeah, one of the things that I've been playing with is this idea of the nuanced wave and that, you know, there's the cultural momentum towards that sympathetic activation, kind of peak intensity, and then the backlash to that, which is a lot of collapse and freeze and numbness. And we, as organisms who've, as Nora Bateson says, have learned to be in our world inside of this culture, kind of whiplash back and forth between that intense activation and that intense freeze a lot. But on a nervous system level, there's this space in the middle which is much more subtle. It's also, it's the space where agency is possible in the sense of you're perceiving how your system is responding to the, the touch of the other systems around you. And there's enough slowness and enough attunement that you can actually, as much as possible, it's never a finite, this is how it works, but there's more of an ability to then choose a response and be in this really subtle dance where resonance and co-creation can happen. Yeah, that, that middle space is actually the present moment, you know, being, being fully present, not only within ourselves, but in relation to the world around us. Yeah. And that sympathetic response of our nervous system is always taking us out of that direct fluid experience. And maybe you could talk a bit about that and, and also the tremendous grief that creates inside of us when we find ourselves so continually disconnected from what's most precious and most important within us. Yeah. I think one entry point to that is over the last couple of years, as I've had support and 
containers to start to come into this kind of present moment attunement. It doesn't happen as much anymore, but it still sometimes happens and like was really present for a couple of years where there would be this sense of being unable to drop into the felt sense of my body because I spent so much of my life away from that. And it was almost like my system didn't want to believe it was possible to feel, you know, just, I mean, basic, basic things, like just feel my lower, lower body supported by gravity and the shifting that happens in, in my muscles and my legs and, you know, in my, my psoas as I start to just like let my body be held by something that's bigger than me. And it almost is if there's this like wall of all of those generations of ancestors who spent so much of their lives kind of lifted up away from that and having to kind of hold everything inside of their own bodies because there wasn't a cultural webbing for that support to land. And so it's been in my personal practice, which I studied with Liz Cook, who I know you've also talked to, around just that ability to land and just be, be with my body as an organism which a lot of the time looks like, you know, laying on the floor, curling up in a ball. And then I've also studied a lot with Larissa Call, who does similar work around that kind of attunement to all of the, the wider fields of holding that can allow kind of vital process to start to, to move and unfold in the body again. And so for several years, I've had an ongoing practice of just coming back to that landing in my own system and meeting that wall of grief and also it feels like a lot of the kind of cultural abandonment trauma also lives in that place and there's this kind of this fear of aloneness almost as if so much of the consensus reality is is weighted towards this certain way of you know pushing through kind of dissociating that there's kind of a biological fear of dropping back in to that wider space because so many of the humans aren't there. Well, it would go totally against the kind of conqueror, settler, colonialist mentality that our culture, our, our Western culture has cultivated for millennia. Yeah. And then also on a, on a really intimate level, it's like that entire backlog and then also just the, the incredible intimate level of, you know, when you're a child and you're growing up and the adults around you don't have access to the ability to be in the present moment, to, you know, to feel their bodies held by gravity, to just have an experience of belonging and being embedded in the wider ecosystem, then there's this immense kind of confusion that happens where it's like that natural state becomes a threat. And it becomes wrong because the the big ones, the ones who are older than you, who should you know be able to be modeling what it's like to move through the world, are gating out that entire root system of reality. Yeah, and as you said, that in between space is very subtle, and mm-hmm. our culture does not operate on that subtle level. So that that inner quiet voice or voice of no voice is completely drowned out all the time. And you also mentioned how we don't even believe that it's possible until we've had a clear, direct experience of that from the perspective of being able to 
safely settle into that kind of essential space within ourselves. Yeah. And then translating it out into our relationships with the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Because that is a huge leap from just the initial self-discovery of what actually exists inside of ourselves, you know, remembering what exists deep inside of ourselves, because it's like we learn as children, we learn how to adapt to the world around us and learn all the, the habits of our culture. And then those of us who do aspire to something different, something that our culture doesn't offer, then we have to blaze our own trail because even, even other cultures that have that embedded in it, it's still a foreign tradition. It's still a foreign concept to us so that even if we're studying other traditions approach to that deeper essential aspect of ourselves, we still have to somehow other blaze our trail to that direct experience. Right. It reminds me of this old saying back when I first started all this. In the beginning, it doesn't come. In the middle, it doesn't stay. And in the end, it doesn't leave. But in the beginning, it doesn't come. And it really feels like it doesn't come. It's, it's not possible, it seems. And that's a kind of sympathetic activation of our nervous system that makes it so hard to grow out of and to learn. Because modern science is coming to realize that we only learn and we only heal and we only grow in parasympathetic mode. Mm -hmm. And we just don't value that. Even though science is beginning to catch on to that, the rest of society is so driven by economic and political agendas and ideologies that are still 180 degrees counter to all of that. So we, we literally have to decolonize our own mind or take back our minds and take back our whole, our whole being. I mean, it begins kind of with our mind because our mind has been so thoroughly colonized and hijacked by our dominant culture and it's not an easy journey to begin. Yeah, it's such a paradox to be in this process, you know, of being an adult and having to kind of relearn these very basic things about how to exist in a body and in relationship. The one thing I'm still, this, this is part of the reason why I ended up having a conversation with my tacky mushroom, which is part of the writing is this relationship with this mushroom being who I, I met in the forest under the roots of a mother oak tree and then ended up kind of being in dialogue with as I was trying to articulate some of these intuitions that I was receiving from ancestors in the wider web but feeling like there was almost a taboo about talking about them because they were simultaneously so close up and so embedded in what it means to be an organism and to exist, but also not talked about at all by the culture. And so in this kind of collaboration conversation between my talkie mushroom and me, I've been starting to tune into this sense that there's a whole maturational process that our culture has completely gated out. And it's still not really sensed into even in 
it's kind of gestured towards by conversations about the nervous system, interpersonal neurobiology, polyvagal theory. There's some elements of it there, and then there are other elements of it in animism and systemic constellations. Um, Francis Weller's work talking about ritual and initiation. But there's this piece around the maturational process that feels really important as a way of looking at that webbing between nervous system and ecosystem and how that's a transgenerational process, that it doesn't happen within the whole idea of the isolated self. Like can an acorn become, you know, a healthy embedded mature oak tree if it doesn't have the whole mycelium and the whole webbing of relationships with all the other beings in the forest. And the, the sense that settler colonist dominant culture really has this sense of the isolated individual, like we're supposed to be acorns and it's missing the entire webbing of relationship that allows us to become trees in a forest and access you know, the communication to create microclimate. But this maturational process, which I kind of was sensing into, and then I am deeply grateful to have afterwards uh, been studying with Bree Greenberg Benjamin, who has a very similar model, but thousands of hours of clinical practice with people that has influenced her shaping of that as well. But this basic sense that we grow our sense of that perceiving center that can allow us to attune with primordial nourishment, with the whole webbing of the wider ecosystem through the humans around us, the big ones when we're children, already having access to their own sense of center and their own attunement with the wider ecosystem. And so like interpersonal neurobiology talks about this as like co-regulation, attachment theory, but there's a a shifting that happens when it, instead of looking at it as between humans, you're also looking at the relational field energies and the ways that the adult is really a portal to the entire ecosystem, to the ancestors, to the the dreaming body of the land. Their ability to perceive that gives biological permission for the child to start to grow that sense inside of themselves. And so what has been talked about as initiation and Francis Weller has, has a whole course on it. And I was really moved by a lot of the material, but I kept feeling the, the missing of this maturational piece around that shifting from the mediated experience that we expect biologically as children of the adults being portals into this. So that then when we're at that stage in adolescence, where we start to come into our direct experience of that whole wider web and our sense of that discerning center that can engage with it, that there's this tissueing process kind of between the mediated experiences of that, other people holding the field of that, so that we can rest back into that parasympathetic, ventral vagal, wider holding, that that feeling of trust and ease and belonging. And then begin to cultivate a sense of that, that that radiates out from us and we can we can move through the world with that and, and become that portal for other beings as well. So anyways, all of that. Um, but then as adults, when many of us in settler colonist culture have, you know, lineages of many generations of attachment wounding and disconnection from that kind of experience of adults with that coherent, resonant 
ability to attune to the wider ecosystem. Then we're in this parallel stitching process where we have to do both at the same time. We need to find those spaces where, you know, there are groups or there are other humans who can contact that wider field and hold that space so that we can start to taste it at the same time as we're also doing our personal practice and finding access to that within our own systems. So it's almost like this, think of it as kind of this coalescing of a sense of center from the holding of those wider fields. And that as mammals, we need that from other mammals to really feel like we have the full permission to start to attune to that sense of erotic life force and that sense of creative responsibility has been one word I've been playing with to describe that. Yeah, it's a reflective process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we need the modeling from outside Mm -hmm. and the initiation. And it sounds like you've also been receiving initiation along these lines from Maitake and other nature beings. Yes. And I think there's a tendency in this culture to be like, oh, this is the way or this is the one pathway in which you know, we will do the thing, we will learn the thing. And I think what I really deeply feel at this point in my journey is that it is such a relational webbing. Nora Bateson talks about it as mutual transcontextual learning. It's like not just one thread, but all of these different beings. And so, yeah, there are nature teachers who have been deeply, deeply don't even have a word for it. There's a steadiness that I have felt from the wild ones that for many, many years, for most of my life, I did not feel like I could receive from other humans. And there's a way that the mentoring of those nature beings like birch, turtles, and maitake mushroom are main ones for me that has allowed me to start to sense in other ways outside of that kind of prescriptive shape of human that our culture says is the only way. So there's that. And also there are human teachers and peers who on an embodied level, I would not be able to feel kind of the sense of somatic flexibility, nervous system, spaciousness, which is you know, always in process, always messy, like, (laughs) you know, always evolving. But there's a kind of robustness and ease of existing that also really did need to come from other humans. So again, it's that whole tissuing of that whole tensegrity structure of it, not just being one pathway, but reconnecting to the many, like myriad webbing of relationships. Yeah, connecting with human beings who know how to hold that kind of space for others because they've already been able to do it for themselves. Yeah. And I think the, one of the deepest pieces that has been so helpful is this sense of it's, it's the humans who know that they are also held. That, that's what makes the difference. And that's the portal piece, like trying to sense into is this sense of the ones who, when you sit with them, You know, when they have a a container that they open, you're with them and you're also with the river and you're also with the, you know, primordial mud that is bubbling up, you know, 
and you're with the deep time ancestors. And so there's this somatic permission to also sense into that within your own system because the person is accessing that wider container. Yeah, people who can hold that deep level of silence for us, for themselves, just in being, that invites the rest of us to connect with that portal that we are. Yeah, and that dance of any time someone is holding, what determines whether it can go towards vitality is whether they're also feeling held. And I think that the very ecosystemic part of this is that the nature of reality is nested fractals. You know, it's not flat. It's always, there's always layers on either side. And so that ability to be both holding and held at the same time allows for a kind of open system play that's not possible when it's just this cosmology of, I call it the human to human bubble that gets set up when there's that closed system and there's all this emotion and there are all these ancestral trauma spirits, but nobody actually names them. We just call them like thoughts or, you know, feelings and they're bouncing around. And the only resources in the room are these humans kind of interacting on a human level. But when there can be that shift to this sensing of this entire relational webbing, it literally changes the texture of the air in the room, the texture of the silence. When there's that feeling, that attunement to all of the other beings who are also present as we're speaking. Right. When we're able to connect with the silence rather than those thought and feeling forms that are bouncing around, as you as you say, because yeah. they... They have a tendency to hijack us because we're so conditioned by them. And that what we call the silence, that that's it. What we call the silence is that primordial nourishment. It is that consciousness that can turn towards us and just be with us in a way that allows us to be more deeply. And that piece, that was a big shifting for me. I trained to facilitate grief rituals. I did my MFA thesis on the intersection between grief ritual and ecological imagination. And then about six months later, I chose to stop facilitating grief rituals because there was still some colonial thing in the mix that I couldn't figure out. And it's about that sense that the thoughts, the emotions, the contraction, the pain gets so amplified. And we don't have that nervous system webbing to the sense of the silence, the emptiness, the the what's bigger than us actually being a real consciousness that's holding us. And so that grief just becomes overwhelming. And you can go into a, you know, a ritual container and experience that sense of a wider field holding it. But then coming back into life, the nervous system patterns are still very much set to that feeling of abandonment. And so one phrase that I've been playing with is the emptiness that is also filled. This sense that one of the paradoxes is, do we perceive the silence, the void, the darkness? Do we perceive it as a threat, as isolation, as just our isolated self and in this kind of endless expanse of nothing? Or are we able to sense the way that there is a wider field of presence that is nurturing us and being with us whenever we're, quote, alone? 
Mm, yeah, that is so wonderful. And as you said so beautifully, that silence, that deep silence isn't just empty. It's also so full. It's full beyond fullness. It's like it's the fullness from which everything else emerges out of. Yeah. There's this sense that everything is an ancestor. There's one other phrase that came through is uh, the bones of all the dead returned to feed the wider ground of life. And this sense of standing on first stone that all of the beings who ever existed are supporting us in every moment. Yeah, that's such a wonderful thing to, like I've been chewing on how we all need to release, inevitably we have to release ourselves, our bodies at the time of death and kind of offer it as food for the compost heap out of which new life will be born. But also that applies to our ideas and our thoughts and our beliefs. We also need to be doing that continually throughout our lives. Which is really related to that sense of the nuanced wave, that center place of the nervous system. But yeah, I think that's part of the whole kind of Western construction of self as this solid fixture. <laughs> um, Unchanging and, and consistent. Yes, and, and legible to other solid fixtures. Yeah, my experiences of sitting by the river you know, over the course of several years, or sitting in the, the Mississippi backwaters watching turtles, the modeling of any ecological place, you know, I mean, the place for the backwaters I sat was right next to a truck stop, all these trucks would drive by. And then there were the turtles and, you know, this log and this place where, you know, the boat harbor was nearby. So there'd be, you know, all this algae in the water and stuff, and the turtles would still hang out on the logs in the sun. But to be with all of the changing textures of a place really started to reshape my sense of what a self is. And the metaphor of the river, these beautiful drawings of the Mississippi meander maps, where you can see 10,000 years of the river's different courses. And that sense of this wild being that is constantly you know, in every moment making these micro adaptations of, you know, different subtle shapes of contact, that this flow is changing the shape of what is solid around it. Like that, there's so many other ways of existing that we could have access to outside of the colonial frame. Yeah, you write that we're here to dissolve and reform on a continual basis, which made me think of, you know, that process of imaginal cellular metamorphosis that's so beautifully expressed through the caterpillar to the butterfly. But it's actually something that you say we're designed to do that. That's, a, that's our very nature to be doing that on a continual basis in various different ways. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is that it, the ecstatic belonging course that I'm a part of, and one of the things they talk about inside of it is that the, the imaginal cell process, the cells start at the very edges of the cocoon and they grow towards the center, they coalesce into a being. But that sense of you know starting at the edges, which is where I think a lot of the kind of the deep truths of our existence get sent as we kind of try to protect ourselves as children in this culture is sort of exiling the places to the edges where they can't be seen. And I wanted to talk about when you were talking about 
death practice is a, a frame that my teacher, Der Sohe, talks about and Larissa Call also. And one of the most profound practices that I have experienced and I've been doing for the last several months is an audio recording that Larissa did of this attunement to absolute nature, holy mother, primordial nourishment, the sense of that primordial foundation of reality. And then from that attunement, going into this death practice of imagining that you will die tonight and meeting whatever is unmetabolized in your system, whatever kind of floating intensity, energetic, emotional bubbles are present and not doing anything with it, but just letting that contact with primordial nourishment, absolute nature, holy mother, go towards, hold, attune, dissolve, just meet whatever feels like it's not that. And that process has just, especially as I'm like navigating experiences of chronic illness has been another big shaper in my life. And there've just been times, you know, where either intense emotional waves were coming through or intense waves of pain were coming through. And I have just kind of continually been returning to that meditation as a way of being in that tissueing process where I can feel, you know, this human who is deeply connected to that field. And then I can start to sense the field in my own system and make that tissueing, that relational webbing so that there are times now where I can do that process without needing to have the recording there because there's starting to kind of be a coalescing happening in my system around direct access to that wider field. Could you say more about that practice? Yeah, this is a practice that I would do with myself and, you know, have done with different friends. And my grandpa has been in hospice the last month and part of his dying process was actually my engagement with it was noticing all the things that were coming up in my system as I watched him in that dying process. So the death practice meditation was a way that I was able to metabolize that. And it's interesting because there is an endless, infinite amount of material to metabolize in all of our systems at every single moment. And so there's things which I still feel like I'm like in the very, you know, basics of learning about that. Just letting it like trusting that wider body and that wider holding to help discern like what is the like particular being energy, you know, inside of your system at any moment that needs to be witnessed. But I think culturally we have an like insanely huge backlog problem of just like so many generations who did not have access to ways of metabolizing emotion. So, you know, they get passed down as abuse and ancestral trauma and addiction and, you know, all of the things. And so that ability within, you know, our own personal systems to be able to be in that metabolizing process of what in this present moment could be held by the wider body, by that field of primordial nourishment. Like, I feel like it's a very different way of being in the world that then allows for more space for that. My teacher Bree calls it like the clarity of existence to come through. Mm, yeah. Yeah. There are all these different metaphors for talking about this deep yes. <laughs> thing that we're dancing around, like that silence as the nourishment and the space within which we hold all of our experience, both inner and outer and I loved that death practice that you were talking about. It added 
a whole nother dimension to a practice that I had done many years ago, this deathbed practice where I took a full day and closed all the curtains and turned off the phone and, and just lay in bed and invite everybody that I've ever met in my life to come to my bed to take care of any unfinished business. And what you were talking about added the outer dimension of death in, in all the other ways that we experience it and what, what that brings up in us. And it's really in that space, that deep space of silence that, again, that's, that's the container. That's the great container of everything. And grief is one of those things that is so powerful that they say you can't cheat death, but that's obvious. But it's more like you can't cheat grief because if you don't find a way to truly and deeply metabolize it, then it kind of puts your life on hold in a way. It's like, if you can't face death, you can't enter into life. It's sort of like what you spoke of earlier of how our nervous systems have been trained to limit our ability to perceive love. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the great spacious openness of connective possibility. Yeah. And like, this is an edge for me that I'm just starting to feel into. But there's something that feels really true about it for my system around that sense that the primordial foundation of reality is that love. It is that like in really feral, robust, like love in the sense of we all exist as organisms here. And we're in this process of oscillation and resonance and play with all of the other beings around us. That just that ability to be in a body in webbed with other bodies and the fundamental ability to matter as an organism. It's so funny. Like I still notice it. And even as I'm writing, you know, have been writing my thesis, I put that question as a footnote. My kind of surface question, academic framing, you know, is the question, what is the edge between the nervous system and the ecosystem? But to be able to say in an academic context, you know, love is the primordial foundation of reality still feels like, you know, an assumption (laughs) or like, there's like no way to prove it. And I find this with the stuff around like polyvagal theory and interpersonal neurobiology and the nervous system too. It's like, it's not saying that reality doesn't have pain and suffering and threat in it. But there's something about that ability to be in the kind of nested fractals of existence with life force coming through you. It's just, it's not in our perceptual field as a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. I was just reflecting on how we have to have that direct, full embodied experience of the porous nature of that fractal boundary between our sense of self and other, or our nervous system and the the ecosystem around us. And we often experience it as really overwhelming or, you know, the other piece of it is that because we don't have that just basic kind of cultural webbing into that wider field, then the ways that most people experience it are through kind of these peak experiences, either in trauma or in like trance states where it's like a breakthrough experience and then you go back to this baseline 
of the kind of pushing through and the numbness. And something I've been playing with, you know, all the things about the story of separation and, you know, we're isolated individuals and like so much cultural narrative about that side of the, you know, giant oscillation towards separation. What isn't culturally tracked as much, but I think is equally true, is the other side of that pendulum is because there's not the cultural support in growing a sense of that center and that nuanced present moment discernment. We also get stuck in a lot of merging and many people who've experienced trauma end up feeling so porous and so energetically overwhelmed, you know, maybe very sensitive to, to spirits, to nature beings, you know, to all of the non-human wider webbing, but don't have a capacity to have embodied agency around that because the volume is turned up so high. So there's a big piece around that coalescing of the sense of center so that you're able to be in discerning relationship. Larissa talks about the like the just right kind of engagement and that ability to, to modulate the intensity of an experience so that you know, you're not completely overwhelmed by it, but you're able to be in this dance of having, you know, it's paradoxical because on, you know, on the one hand, like you can't avoid harm and discomfort and, you know, the, the non-consensual ways that reality smacks into you. And there's the other piece though, around when you have access to more of a sense of support and both the sense of the wider webbing the holding that's there, and also the discerning center, then there are more possibilities to meet what you experience. Yeah, there's a lot in there. I was just reflecting on, you know, in our culture, instead of having mature elders and sane role models and being initiated into that kind of maturity, we've actually received the opposite, including a lot of trauma and grief that have built up in multiple layers that actually act as obstacles to our even being able to perceive anything on the other side of that. And also how we haven't learned how to be with trauma and emotional and physical discomfort. Mm -hmm. We've been so conditioned to take a pill or to find a quick fix for it because We've been led to believe that there's something fundamentally wrong with having that experience. And because we all have those kind of experiences, we have been enculturated to believe that there's something fundamentally wrong with ourselves, which kind of pulls the whole rug out from underneath all of us in this culture to be able to to stand on our own two feet as a mature or maturing adult in relationship with everything. So it's like this crazy mess. (laughs) that that we have to learn to navigate. Yeah. You know, so, okay. In the middle of my inquiry into what is the edge between the nervous system and the ecosystem, it started to become really clear that I had an extreme sensitivity to mold and that I'd had it my entire twenties. So I just turned 30 this year and looking back at my entire adult life, I just in the last year have like noticed all of the ways that like my internalized ableism had been leading me to like do all of these things to sort of mask, even from myself, 
how sensitive my body was and like the fact that I was like functionally disabled. And so concurrent with coming into a deeper relationship with my nervous system, with being able to feel like gravity supporting my body to sense, you know, how my embodied experience of like different things coming in and touching my system actually like was kind of underneath layers of numbness. I started having more really intense health issues, like day-long migraines, difficulty breathing in a lot of different spaces. I had to move multiple times. I ended up living in an RV trailer trying to do mold avoidance for a year. And that whole experience leading up to the last four months of finally being able to access an apartment building, like was able to get checked and cleared for mold has been definitely not something I would have chosen in many cases, very brutal, but also really gentle and tender kind of cosmic directionality towards meeting myself like in experiences of pain and discomfort and the animist practices, the somatic practices that I have been meeting and learning in different ways have been just, I mean, I, don't think I would still be alive without having access to, you know, these other ways of perceiving. And in the last couple months, as there's been a little bit more spaciousness in my life and a little bit more support, I've had some experiences of, you know, having like the day-long migraine or the like intense stabbing menstrual cramps where I would be with the pain and I would also feel myself held by this wider body of ancestors, by this sense of within the scope of the intensity my body was experiencing, being able to go just a tiny bit more towards support or towards like, what is the shape my body is wanting to make in this moment? How can I, you know, be like finding subtle movement or sound or breath that can allow, you know, myself to just be, not to fix it or solve it, but just to be with what's happening. And I think that's such a huge thing, especially for people, you know, living with chronic health issues is like, there's such a, you know, whole other thing that gets built up around the solving and the like, the pain of being in the pain and not being able to get out of the pain and not having the help and all the, and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Getting, getting caught in the trap of always resisting pain and discomfort rather than surrendering in that, that sense of surrendering to gravity, surrendering to the inevitability of what is in this moment. And recognizing that there's something truly profound to be found in that space, even in the midst of pain and discomfort. And it's this paradox that like, the more that I play with all these different worlds, it's like the more it's like nothing is flat or nothing is like a single thing. There's always a, a kind of a folded quality or a, you know, like a multidimensionality to it. You know, you're talking about resistance and some of the most pleasurable experiences of chronic illness um, and extreme bodily discomfort that I have had have come from actually like being really with my resistance, you know, and that that's the, that's the paradox of it is that, that that wider body, the long body, primordial nourishment, that field of holding, the deep time ancestors, you know, all of the beings can be with anything. 
And so, you know, we have such a, such a tendency in this culture to like find the bad thing or the thing we don't want. And it's almost like the gesture of being like, oh, you can be included too. You can be included too. I can feel you also, you know, still having, you know, whatever ability we have to modulate and find the agency in there and the, the moving more towards support. But that, like, that's such a paradox is that it like, so often it's actually just the like starting with exactly what's true in this moment and including that, you know, cause I think like a lot of the pain comes from the parts that don't think that they're like worthy of being loved, you know, it's like the self exile that happens internally in our systems with different parts of ourselves. Yeah. It is such a profound paradox. It's like, in a sense, we have to learn to, you know, in the process of really learning the fine art of self-regulation, we have to really learn how to activate our parasympathetic nervous system in the midst of full-on sympathetic activation. Right. Yeah. So one of the things I'm still really playing with, and I'm very much still a novice at, but I'm super curious about how the language that we're using to meet these experiences shapes these experiences. You know, and so we talk about self-regulation and the word regulation comes from the same word as ruler, means to move in a straight line. Mm. Um, and so yeah. <laughs> Im- embedded in this term, which is so helpful, you know, and wonderful in so many ways. And even in, you know, co-regulation and, you know, like we still have that cultural piece around like a certain kind of shaping or control or like make it like this linearity uh, literally like tyson yeah. young Caporta, you know i think says something in sand talk about how like only crazy people walk in straight lines yeah, um, yeah. And, you know so there's like yeah gesturing towards some really deep patterns you know with the framing around the nervous system and also you know there's such a steeping still in the kind of colonial ways of thinking and so, yeah, and I think Nora Bateson talks a lot about multiple description. Gregory Bateson, her dad, came up with that. But the sense of, you know, how can we also talk about, you know, being in our parasympathetic as we're experiencing activation and also, you know, the wider body that can be with us as, you know, there's a particular emotional contraction happening. And the piece that is very wiggly and hard to point to. And I don't fully have language around yet, but I think it is that like nested fractals piece that I don't really see talked about in clinical discourses about the nervous system, that it's not just two, (laughs) you know. It's also spiraling through time. Yes, exactly. Yes. And and time also doesn't exist. It's like you never step twice in the same river. There's that. And then there's the line that came through. We only need maps to places that we don't remember. You know, and there's the whole like Korzybski conversation about, you know, the map is not the territory. And, you know, our culture is so obsessed with the maps, you know. But there's something about what happens when we know something in our bodies, when we, you know, experience it multiple times in multiple ways and start to be able to like grow that direct relationship with it where yeah it's like that's where the silence is that's where there isn't a direct translation into words it's always going to be different forms of gesturing towards yeah and that's it that that's the whole thing and the whole thing exists in that that deep 
silence because it's like there's nothing there's nothing but that and even the cacophony yeah going on exists within that great field of silence that that's incomprehensible because we can only think of it in terms of the way we can linearly comprehend things and it just doesn't compute in that way and yet when you have the actual visceral direct embodied experience of it then you know it in you know in a way that's beyond language and one of the things i really enjoyed about your thesis is is the evolution of language and the way you use language there's a lot of poetic writing in your thesis and i always enjoy i mean i thoroughly thoroughly enjoy new ways of expressing you know old direct experiences Mm. because you know we're living in this very linear culture which relies on symbols and maps because most people have completely forgotten what it was all about in the first place you know what really is in the first place and (laughs) they're literally living their life kind of in a two-dimensional world yes so yeah it's (laughs) It's funny to talk about these things, you know, to use words. <laughs> and and going back to you, you mentioned there's Sohe. They said, I'm gonna read this. You're talking about words as spirits that point to spirits that come from spirits. Words as spirits in relationship together create or dream new direct experience or dream encounters that are ours. So again. This is a shift. This is a way of using words in ways that's very creative to try and gesture toward something. Could you untangle that for our listeners? (laughs) Yes. The whole game changes when everything gets to be alive and gets to be a being. You know, I mean, and that's the shifting out out of the aloneness in a lot of ways. It's the terrifying part if you don't, you know, have access to a sense of embodied center where you're able to be in that, you know, subtle navigation. So I have been working on this project for three years. And then before that, definitely in lots of ways too, but especially over the last three years, you know, specific research into the nervous system, specific somatic practice, you know, being with these different sit spots and nature beings connecting to deep time ancestors. And there's been this layering process of, all of these different moments of relationship with these very specific different beings. And so I accumulated probably at least a thousand pages of (laughs) pointing to the thing that was not words. And it's a very interesting process to be in collaboration with this entire ecosystem of beings as I'm writing this that came out of, you know, these two summers uh, sitting at a sit spot watching turtles and attuning to six different ecosystemic beings that are kind of somewhat attuned to the six sacred directions that allow the coalescence of a sense of center and somewhat attuned to deep time ancestors and land. And as Mary Oliver says, the soft animal of my body. But I would go each day for these two summers, most days to these sit spots and I would be with the turtles and I'd be with the land and the shifting textures in the ecosystem and in myself. And I would just do this channeled writing from these six different beings. And 
over time, those writings refine themselves into these different poems. And then at a particular point, I did a ritual where I would read aloud each poem and I would paint the feeling of it onto this one big piece of paper. And so I painted onto this, you know, this big piece of paper, just like abstract colors and movements that were happening. And then I cut the paper into 24 pieces. So what has become the Oracle deck is one single being, one single image of this ecosystem that I was playing with and is also 24 different, you know, pieces of that image and then poems on the back. And as I was writing my thesis, which has taken a year and a half longer than it was supposed to because of my chronic health stuff. And also because it is a very different kind of collaboration when you're working with like this very wiggly, you know, alive ecosystem of ideas. There was a point in the process where the Oracle deck that like each of these poems told me it wanted to be one of the vertebrae of the thesis, the book really it kind of at that point was like, okay, I want to be a book. And so I have in the process of writing 12 essays or 24 essays, the thesis has 12 essays right now, but the book will have 24 essays, one for each of the Oracle poems. And each of those essays is a kind of coalescing of these direct experiences of relationship with the wider body. And so the process of going from like journal entries, you know, quotes from different practitioners, some of the different channeled writing, and then different like direct memories, you know, of times when I felt that presence and that support of holding, it's still very, like, I'm still learning and it's still, it's it's its own thing to like write in this way. I've, I've never done something like this before, you know, where it's not just like direct channeling, you know, has come very easily for me of just kind of attuning to the spirit of a tree or the spirit of an ancestor and letting their voice come through. But then this kind of iterative process of gathering that material, letting it meet each other and talk to each other and become its own being. And there has been a certain point in each of the essays where I feel often it's that I feel really stuck. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just kind of reading things. Sometimes I will like take the words into movement or singing or painting or just like let them live in some other nonverbal form. But then there's a point where I start getting a direct memory that I can kind of like time travel back and live inside of and speak in present tense about. And that experience is able to hold all of the threads that I'm wanting to write about. And often it will come with a particular voice or sometimes it'll be like (laughs) one of the essays I was super surprised by was the one about the room in my mother's house that was haunted. And I had like this one memory that had happened of meeting that space and doing a ritual in that space that I had kind of forgotten about and had never thought of like, oh, I'm gonna include this in, you know, in this writing project. But I was just, I was being with these different energies and suddenly the spirit of that memory just was like, I want to be in this. So I'm really playing with this sense of like, how can the writing itself be an organism that is alive? And how can the ecosystem of 
all these ideas and different beings and felt sense experiences kind of coalesce into these particular, like, there's almost a sense of going from flat to this, like, thick bubble of experience. Yeah, like from a seed to a fully blooming flower or a full-grown tree. Yeah, exactly. And another metaphor I've been playing with is, you know, Ian McGilchrist writes about like the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. And with the nervous system stuff around sympathetic activation, it's very correlated with, you know, kind of shifting into left hemisphere in this very flat, decontextualized view of reality. And I've been playing with shifting that to the metaphor of seed mind and forest mind. You know, so it's not a binary. It's not a like one is bad, the other is good, but it's the seed that hard protective membrane, you know, that like presents as an isolated individual self, it actually needs to be returned to the forest, you know, into the earth, into this, this whole wider ecosystem so that it can be nurtured and grow. Yeah. And many of our seeds, for those of us living in this culture, are having a hard time finding fertile soil Yeah, to grow in, you know, because the seeds unfolding is a totally natural process, but it does need certain nutritional elements, nurturing elements, just as we all need nurturing elements, like from our parents or from elders around us. And many of us have really struggled with that. Can I read something? Please. This okay. feels right. And it's kind of sweet because you didn't read this in the draft that I sent you. Oh, cool. One of my yeah. first pieces of writing in this project, and it accompanies a painting of a woman who is like this naked body that's curled inside a seed. And like parts of her, like there's this sense of kind of sprouts starting to come out of her and webbing back into the soil around her. Okay. Germination and the sprouting of roots begins with an act of burial. The seed becomes a sacrifice, made sacred by surrender into mystery, buried deep in the womb of the earth. The seed begins as a contraction, a concentrated core of aliveness, its hard shell of protection against premature revelation, carried within it the exquisitively sensitive discernment of knowing when it is safe to unfold. The seed needs the pressing warmth of soil to begin the process of germination. It is so painfully close to the bone, so fearful of exposure, so utterly tender and raw. The process begins at the core, in that deep listening and stillness, an intense concentration of energy, a humming pulse of life. The sacred dark, warm and moist, the compost a sovereign trust in the necessity of loss as material for transformation. From here, an internal ignition begins within the seed, a moment of choice, knowing it is safe to crack open and spill its tender roots into the soil, a libation, a remembering. Mm, that is so gorgeous. I'm surprised that didn't find its way into your thesis. <laughs> so the thesis, yeah, this was another thing that happened because I was hoping to finish the whole book 
you know, when I graduated from Goddard from the embodiment studies program, but it's like so many different beings and so much material. And so there was a point where I asked the ancestors and asked the land and asked all the beings who are supporting, like, I need to finish this in the next day. (laughs) I don't know how to do this, but I want to finish it so that I can graduate and be done with this degree. And they were like, just do half of it. (laughs) Just turn in half of it. That's your thesis. It's called Make Your Body the Prayer. And then you can finish the book. And so a lot of what wasn't in the thesis is kind of more experiences of practice and some of the other nature conversations. Could you share some experience? Hmm. There's one thing that I'm remembering that you talked about singing and sound and vibration and how we can use sound to clear ourselves, like a rushing river flowing through a canyon, clearing out all the debris, sort of like a way of clearing our heads so that we can just sink back into our natural parasympathetic state. I keep going back to to those linear (laughs) terms, but we use this English language, which is very linear. And I'm trying to, you know, dance on both sides of the fractal edge, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. It's the whole pointing towards the moon thing. Yeah. The hands we have available to us at the moment. Yes. And getting back to that embodied practice, the real work, that all of this is pointing to. There was this great line in the section titled Entanglement of being embedded in a sea of eyes. Yeah. And I also, I have to say, I cannot take credit for any of the Oracle cards. They came through me. Probably at least half the writing in here is like, you know, it came through me and I also resonate really deeply with it, but I also feel like I didn't really write it. I wonder if we can take credit for anything in our lives. Well, yes, there is that too. I think there are certain things which are more like, yes, I kind of birthed the entire thought. I, rem- you know, I remember, you know, the different steps leading to how the thought came. And then there's certain things that are just from the field, it feels like. But mm-hmm. yes, entanglement. And being embedded in a sea of eyes. That's such a wonderfully kind of complex, poetic, metaphorical line. And I would love for you to unfurl that for us, to use a term that you use a lot in your thesis. Mm. And there's also a Goethe quote that Mm. relates to that, about how, you know, human beings only know themselves insofar as they, or or we know the world, and we perceive the world only within ourselves, and ourselves only within the context of the world. And here's the key line, every new object clearly seen opens up a new organ of perception in us. That's like a massive portal in itself. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I have kind of experienced it in my own system and then have also sort of received it from many different places, from David Abrams' writing and Robin Wall Kimmerer's writing, practices with Larissa Call, this sense of what shifts when the being you're in relationship with is also looking back at you. So Robin Wall Kimmerer, you know, has this question, you know, it's not just do you love the earth, but it's do you feel the earth loving you back? And like a key practice that I've learned from animist arts from Darren Larissa is this sense of, you know, when you're dropping in, you're feeling gravity, you're resting on Minnesota Makoche, 
the traditional homeland of the Dakota people. And so when I feel this land body, can I also feel in my system this land turning towards me and witnessing me? And it's a real somatic effect that happens when you can feel that and you can play with that with any being that you are in relationship with, with any thought, with any emotion, with any nature being, the land, the elements. And even that, when we've been talking about the silence, that the silence is itself a consciousness. And it changes. I actually wonder, you know, playing with that edge between nervous system and ecosystem and what the kind of Western scientific world has picked up that it might not fully understand yet. There's research within polyvagal theory that talks about the muscles of the ear. The middle ear muscles are like a drum. And when someone goes towards parasympathetic, goes towards the sense of ventral vagal, they call it social engagement system, that drum in the ear, the middle ear muscles will, I think is that they tighten. And so there's an ability to perceive more subtlety and nuance. And they talk about it as it's, you know, we're tuned to be able to perceive the human voice and nuances in the human voice more specifically. But I think it's more than that, that there's something about tuning to the silence, tuning to the field energies, the subtle, you know, not big, flashy, threatening presences, but, you know, getting into that present moment, micro nuanced wave ability to touch and relate. And a long, long time ago, when I was like 14, one of my first kind of experiences of the sacred was falling in love with theater and this theater company that had these gorgeous operas that were just kind of a weaving of these different texts. And they were able to really transmute emotions of pain into expressions of beauty. And there was a feeling in the silence after this one moment I kind of keep returning to is this aria, this character had lost her lover, her lover had died and she was alone in a black dress and she was singing her lament and she had this bundle of bright red roses and there was this projection of a pale blue sky behind her. And you know, the last note, this like arching high note and she threw the roses across the stage and the silence after that happened felt thick. And I've been tracing that ever since. The way that there's a certain kind of attunement that can happen in our systems that we really can, it, it is perceivable. It changes something in our systems. And I feel like that's really related to the sense of can you feel the field looking back at you? and holding you. Yeah, it just hit me that, again, even like in our Western culture, people who are obsessed with spiritual development and enlightenment are still thinking of it as a personal, isolated experience. And it's actually anything and everything but that. Yeah, and the effort, like Larissa talks a lot about relaxing effort, which is, I think, one of the most profound teachings I have ever received is like that, you know, you're trying to feel gravity and like, let your body relax into the support of the chair beneath you. And then there'll be this little reminder of like, and relaxing effort. Because it's amazing how much like individualistic effort 
you know, we end up putting into like feeling held or just being in the present moment. It's like that part of us that is so tuned to like gripping and holding it on our own. And that's like another kind of pattern thing is that when we don't feel the holding of the wider body, when we don't feel like we're witnessed by this wider web, the emotions still have to go someplace. They still have to be held by some kind of body. So we hold them inside of ourselves. You know, our fascia literally constrict and dehydrate, you know, to hold on to all of these movements, these expressions that have no place to go. They have no place to be held by. So they either, you know, get stuck in our bodies or we push them through other bodies, you know, create sacrifice zones and systemic oppression and like all, you know, addictive patterns you know, it lives in that place. Yeah. And what we don't take responsibility for and deal with within ourselves, we leave to our children. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I've been studying in the last year and a half is systemic constellations. And that has just opened up a whole different world around looking at agency, looking at how like patterns in our individual systems ripple backwards. And one of the, the concepts from Constellations that comes from Bert Hellinger, who's one of the kind of original framing people of it, is the flow of love that our most ancient ancestors, you know, all the way to the present, there's this flow, you know, again, of that primordial nourishment, that energy we've been talking about that is, you know, supposed to come all the way through to the young ones. And when there's trauma, when there's suffering, because it's like there will always be trauma, there will always be suffering, there will always be, you know, the different moments of pain and discomfort. And what makes such a difference is whether those moments can be held and metabolized. And that that's what allows those moments to be just a part of the pattern of reality and integrated and, you know, to become things that are learned from. And one of the biggest wounding places in this culture, I think going back several thousand years, is the loss of the perception of those wider body energies that can allow the metabolizing and the loss of the flexibility in what we perceive as being human that can allow us to move, to make sound, to you know, be in creative expression so that the energies don't get trapped inside of us, but that they get to circulate through the whole ecosystem. Because, you know, it's that whole thing of like, everything is food, you know, everything can be metabolized, can become compost, like nothing is excluded from, you know, this system of nested fractals. It's always a part of the web. And when it starts to amplify and contort and kind of become a closed system is when it loses the ability to perceive its connectedness. It loses the ability to express and circulate. Right. Because we all, we're all feeding each other and we're all dependent on each other. And it's not easy for us to, I mean, it's easy for us to recognize that we need the land. We live on the land and it feeds us and it nourishes us and it holds us, it supports us, even if we're not able to surrender and relax into being held and supported in that way. But on the other side of that, it's hard for us to imagine that the land and nature has a purpose or has a need for us mm. in this whole cycle, like this notion of the land dreaming through us, you know, nature dreaming through us in ways that we can't even imagine until it's happening because 
it's not coming from us. It's a relational dynamic that is continually unfolding, unfurling, if we allow enough space for it to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I love the Emerald podcast has an episode about humans as shapeshifters. Mm. Um, and I love that. And also Tyson Yankaporta talking about our ability to perceive patterns, which it feels like the constellation, um, systemic constellation framing is really helpful for that because it's the clearest place where I've really been able to sense what it means to be able to resonate with another being on behalf of a wider system where it's almost like the whole web just like wants to be in relationship and be in creativity and be in expression. You know, I even feel it like this on a really micro level with emotions and different, you know, thought patterns. When they can be expressed, they change. And I think that's one of the things we've forgotten, you know, is we're very afraid of expression because you need a container so that it doesn't become overwhelming. You need that. You need that sense of that wider holding and you need someplace for it to go. That's outside of that human to human bubble. So that the emotion, the expression, it, it can actually become compost, it can feed something else, and it can become beauty. Could you describe a situation or circumstance that actually creates that kind of a space or that kind of direct experience? Mm. Okay. Yeah. So this story that I'm co-creating for long body prayers, it begins with this conversation with a birch tree and kind of the middle of an ongoing conversation with ancestors and nature beings about the just immense grief and isolation and loneliness and not belongingness and huge rage at the lack of support and the lack of both people who are able to descend to a place of presence and also my ability to be with those people in an authentic way where I can actually collaborate with them. And so three years ago, not long after I stopped facilitating grief rituals, you know, grief rituals definitely are a way to metabolize emotion. One of the forms I studied was Azul Valerie Tomei's grief composting circles. And both her work and Frances Weller's work is very much around that framing of the emotions becoming food for the ancestors and the wider body of the earth. And again, well, there's deep truth there for my own system. I found that just participating in those like weekend workshops or kind of cordoned off from daily life reality ritual spaces, I was still having really deep experiences of relationship rupture, you know, where the people that I resonated with and wanted to learn from, there would just be messy relational things that happened that neither of us had capacity to metabolize. And so the relationship would break. And, you know, a lot of that was my own patterns of what I later learned was were dynamics around merging or not being able to discern early, like my embodied sense of yes or no. And added to the soup is like my own familial experience of like, I really don't know my dad or his side of the family at all. My parents separated when I was a baby. My mom's side of the family has a lot of estrangement. They're the 
Puritan ancestors who came on the Mayflower, so I'm not very surprised by that. <laughs> but there's just this whole soup, which pretty much all of us are in in this culture, this soup of wounding and low capacity and the ways that our own personal experiences reflect and magnify that entire accumulation of ancestral trauma and grief that then just sort of sits on top of our nervous systems, stopping us from being able to like feel at ease in our bodies and welcome in reality. And so one of my experiences of beginning to metabolize my own touching of that cultural wounding was a ritual I did, super simple, slightly inspired by Frances Weller, who has this practice called a stone ritual, where you hold a stone, you kind of whisper a grief into it and put it in a bowl of water. But during a grad school residency, because my advisor gave me the assignment, write about what you're angry about. And I decided instead of writing, I would do a ritual about it. And I went into the winter woods with a pocket full of pebbles. And I would whisper into each pebble, one of the things I was deeply enraged about and put it down someplace where I kind of had the sense the land wanted me to put it down. And I don't know, I maybe had 12 pebbles, you know, took probably about an hour. And each time I would hold and kind of whisper into the pebble what I was feeling, I'd feel it. I'd let the full beingness of that emotion come up in my system. So by the end, I was crying. I was making raging sounds. But I was also walking in a forest and, you know, speaking to the land and knowing the land was hearing me. And it was a conversation. And I was kind of letting the land guide where I went. And at the end, I ended up in front of this ancient birch tree. And she's probably the biggest birch tree I've ever seen. I love Suzanne Simard's writing about mother trees and very much had the sense that she was the mother tree of all the other birch trees and all the other trees in the forest. And so I had one last pebble and I put it down at her roots and I just let it rip. And I just like shared all of the grief and the pain and the betrayal I was feeling at that moment in my life with her and asked for her guidance. And I had wearing around my neck at the time this sorrow pouch that I had made in a ritual when I visited some of my ancestral homelands in England, Carolyn Hillier's like thousand-year-old farm on Dartmoor in England. Uh, we had this practice where we made, we sewed the sorrow pouch out of deer leather from Dartmoor. So I'd been wearing that probably for a year or something. And inside of the pouch was a turtle, a stone carving of a turtle that I had I think it, I was literally just in the first couple months of being like, oh, I really like turtles. I, you know, I need to slow down in my life. I like am really sensitive to energy and turtles would be a really good nature mentor for like learning how to discern more and have more of a sense of boundaries and find the slowness I actually need to feel in my system. So I'd literally just like gotten this turtle and the birch tree had this giant hollow in her center. And so as I was talking to her, she said some particular things to me. And one of the things she said is, this didn't used to be the edge. And I remembered it. I wrote it down later. This is three years ago. Very recently, I came up with the thesis question, what is the edge between the nervous system and the ecosystem? And just yesterday, as I was writing, I was like, 
oh, she answered my question. <laughs> so it's like the time keeps folding. But I had the impulse to give this birch tree my sorrow pouch with the turtle in it for safekeeping. As I went on a deeper exploration of what I was carrying of this, my piece of the ancestral abandonment pain body, which I was wanting to start to metabolize. And I thought I would come back and get the pouch from her at the next residency, but the pandemic started right after that. And so my grad school residency has shifted to online and I haven't been back to Vermont in three years since then. So that sorrow pouch sitting in the hollow of this grandmother birch tree has become the conditions of holding that are allowing this book to coalesce and all the shiftings that have happened in my own system feel like they've really been held and blessed by this birch tree being and her also being a portal to that sense of deep belonging, primordial belonging that I felt from her that day in the woods. I am so moved by the way you connect with nature beings in such a deep and profound way and receive and create a kind of level of relationship that many of us don't get to experience at all in our lives. Mm. You know, considering the nature of our culture. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have conversations with my friends about this too, around like the fear that we're like imagining it. If we hear a nature being speak to us, you know, or I have been dancing in my own system for a long time with, you know, the whole local cultural narrative of like, you might be going crazy if you're like hearing a tree talk to you. And it's also one of those places where it, for a long time, it almost felt like I had to choose between connection with spirit, with nature and connection with humans. And I think that's a big shifting and feels really at the center of all of this is that it doesn't need to be a choice, that it's a multidimensional tissuing process. And I think the other thing kind of having to do with like the thinness or the one dimensionality that happens in this culture a lot, like the model of like the weekend workshop, <laughs> you know, or even like the graduate degree or, you know, the sterile contained space in which you could do the deep thing and then you go back to regular life. And what I've really appreciated about Goddard, this is my second graduate degree with Goddard. I did the one about grief ritual there too, is the porousness and the interpenetration. Like there's not a line between my life and my learning, my research. And that feels really true with the play with nature beings and with ancestors too. And I'm like, I'm along with the like relaxing effort. I feel like I'm like continuing to practice and make it more simple. I literally had my first experience of a tree talking to me was another birch tree in that same forest tapping me on the shoulder when I was walking, you know, had like been standing next to it and then started to turn away, tapped me on the shoulder and, you know, called me back to its roots. And I sat down and I listened and I heard, never forget you are connected to us. And there's something which is going to be totally different for, you know, European lineage, settler, colonist, descendant people than it is for people like who actually like have access to some form of intact culture, to some form of indigenous cosmology directly. But there's an aspect about like durational relationship 
meeting, like returning to the relationship in many different textures of self at the same time as the other being in the relationship also gets to be in different textures that starts to create that thickness, that field, that aliveness where things can be expressed and metabolized and transformed. Mm, yeah, I love that kind of multidimensional unfurling interrelational dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. And one other thing that I once heard from nature, which is very helpful, this came from a forest. And one of the sweet spots also, I think this is such a dance too, is like to be in ritual with other humans and also be able to connect with ancestors and to be able to connect with nature beings and not feel like they have to be separate. Like that tissueing process is borrowed from Nora Bateson, that phrase tissueing. There are a lot of places of tissueing that we kind of need to start to play with again as a people. But I heard in a ritual around the question of permission and how do I step into my authority, you know, and how do I speak these things that I've like received as intuition? I heard really clearly from the land, stop trying to understand us. We are understanding you. It's like very literal. They literally are understanding us. They are, you know, the ground that is holding us. But there's so much cultural momentum towards, you know, specific kinds of efforting and causality and sort of earning of worthiness and the ability to show up in lots of different textures outside of that kind of one little delineated box of how you're supposed to be feels really key to starting to like massage and dissolve some of the places of constriction and stuckness. Yeah, including the feeling of disconnection. Yes, yes. And actually, that's like one of the like, you know, here's a takeaway. If you can just meet the part of you that feels disconnected without trying to change it, without it being wrong, you know, and just play with, you know, we have this ability within our sensory systems to be with multiple things at the same time. (laughs) We forget this, but we have the ability to both meet that feeling of disconnection, the like total numbness and freeze and abandonment and be like, you're there. I see you. And at the same time to also feel our body supported by gravity, to also invite in that feeling of the silence, the witnessing, being embedded in a sea of eyes and to, you know, invite in the support of the wise, coherent ancestor beings and a particular tree that's in your backyard. Like you have the ability to invite a whole ecosystem inside of you to start interwebbing. There's a game that I play with some animist friends of mine. It was actually my friend's son was like messing around on Zoom with us. He's like eight years old and he had a piece of scotch tape and he kept putting the scotch tape over the Zoom lens. And we were like, oh, that's a ghost. That's a like nervous system emotion pattern that's like stuck in our system. And like, that's what happens is like you put the tape over the zoom lens and all you see is the feeling, you know? And so the ability to shift our, it's like widening the lens of what we perceive to include like multiple relationships that can all be happening at the same time and are all supported by this primordial web of holding. It changes a lot. You know, it doesn't fix everything. Like still have like days where I'm like super depressed and overwhelmed (laughs) and in pain, but it makes it 
it makes it different in a way that allows for some more possibilities and some openings into creativity. Yeah, it's amazing how all of our thoughts and our perceptions and our feelings are like boundaries themselves. And at the same time that they're boundaries, they're also invitations to connect because the boundary, the fractal nature of the boundary is that it's poracity. It's a, it's a contradiction in terms, but it's a two-way boundary in that it defines and separates while at the same time it connects. And it's sort of that old metaphor of seeing the glass half full or half empty, how we look at it, how we perceive it changes, you know, the language we use or, or the feeling we bring to it or, or the way we allow ourselves to be present with whatever the boundary or the disconnection or discomfort is determines our relationship with it. Mm-hmm. Nora Bateson talks about the idea of a double bind, you know, that no win situation. It's like the experience of being like completely flattened by the situation you're in. There's like nowhere to go. Can't do anything. Can't even tell people about the situation you're in. It's like that stuck. And she says the way out of a double bind is to add more context. You know, and so that's all the things we've been talking about. It's the feeling of gravity. It's connecting with a birch tree. It's inviting in the support of, you know, deep time ancestors. It's, you know, feeling the silence. It's letting yourself sing. It's like making, you know, a weird sound or doing a scribble on a piece of paper. And that as you're adding in more context, you're starting to see what's there and just let it exist and be there. I think a lot of the overwhelm comes from, not fully being willing to just be with what's real. You know, it's too painful. There's not enough support. You know, we're like in that like piece of tape covering the, you know, the Zoom video lens. We're like so stuck in that, that it's like, I don't want to be with what's actually happening. I want to dissociate. I want to push through it. I want to change it. But that that ability to add more context, add more conditions for support so that you can just be with what is and see it and include it back in is what then allows for the shape of something to start to change. And that's the other piece. It's like, we don't really ever do anything to make a problem go away. We don't ever make something change. We are able to come with what is actually happening and present in the moment. And through that holding, whatever that being is that feels stuck, we'll start to explore whether it could be in a different shape. You know, like the breathing pattern will start to shift. So, you know, like, oh, I actually really want, like, I've had this thing happen with like emotions where I'm like caught in a thought loop and I'm like, oh my God, I really wish I could stop obsessing about this. I'm just like totally mortified about this thing that I did and I keep going over it. And I ask that thought pattern, like, you know, would you like to be weather right now instead of a thought pattern? And I just like play with like changing it in my mind into a thunderstorm. Or just like listen for like what is the like elemental movement energy sound pattern that wants to be and it's almost like each you know our thoughts our emotions they're not just that like Nora talks about like not just that and nothing more they're kind of an energy signature a particular being that you know can be expressed and described in lots of different shapes and we just get stuck on very specific very cognitive very linear things which we then like kind of get spelled as like our entire reality, but they can change shape, especially if they have support. 
Yes, that's such a critical point. We have this tendency to get stuck in our stories or our narratives, and we forget that they're all made up. Yes, and there's more context that we're probably not, there's always more context that we're Always, not. always way more context, almost an infinite amount of more context that we can work with, that we can play with, that we can bring in and take a painful, oppressive situation and actually turn it into a playful experience. Yeah. Yeah. And it really just like most of these things just want to be expressed in some way so that they can be met so that they can move. You know, even if that means like I have a lot of freeze in my system that I'm still meeting, you know, I'm still like curling up, you know, in a ball as part of my embodiment practice and just being there in the freeze and also simultaneously feeling gravity supporting me, feeling all of these other presences holding me. And just that, just that embodiment of what is happening in my system, subtle shifting start to happen. You know, my breathing will change. There'll be like a kind of undulation that happens in my body. Yeah, just like anything, you know, all of the beings just want to be met and seen as, you know, as themselves and listened to for how they want to express and move. And I think probably like us, they just want to dance with each other and just play and and have fun and relax into that state of love, not not a romantic or agendaized kind of love, but but a love of open spaciousness with infinite support underneath. <laughs> where we can all feel safe, even with our traumas and our fears and everything else, if we can find the space to do the alchemical dance with that particular thing, like, like what you did with those stones that you whispered your rage and whatever was going on for you into. Mm -hmm. So it's like there's as many different ways to work with all of these things as there are these things that we need to or want to work with. Yeah. There's that. And there's also the like, the just right digestible amount for this particular moment in time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. That paradox, that other, other paradox of <laughs> we are both in this present moment in this very particular unique context. And also there's no such thing as time, you know, and every moment is happening at this time also in the folding. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not our agenda. I mean, everything is collaborating and yeah, we have an illusion of thinking that we can control things, but really <laughs> that's pretty funny to think yeah. that. Yeah. The control piece is like, I think whenever we try and control it, we like end up contorting something else. Right. So we could perhaps pick an Oracle card. Yeah. I'm really feeling like an Oracle card would be lovely right now. And one of the things that I really loved about your Oracle deck is you also have blank cards. Ooh, the blank cards were part of the process. Right now, it, it's 24 filled cards. Although I kind of love that idea of blank cards. That makes me want to play with that. There were like 18 poems that I had channeled from the land, the ancestors, and kind of attunement with my body. And so when I made the painting, I cut out 24 squares. And so there were six cards that I then kind of directly channeled. So that was the point in which there were blank cards. 
Okay, I see. I thought that perhaps you would actually channel from the blank cards in the moment when you were working with them. I wish I did that. That's a really good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I definitely am wanting to play more with this being, you know, it's one of those like, you know, it's dressed up as an Oracle deck, but (laughs) some other things too. That's something I haven't played with as much that I I would like to start to play with more is is sort of real-time channeling. With the maitake mushroom conversations, that was one time when I did, you know, I dropped into the sense of maitake's spirit and channeling her and letting her words come out of my mouth. And it was a, a Zoom call that is part of my quirky podcast practicum project. So I've done the live channeling in that way. Yeah, the Oracle deck might be a nice structure within which to do some channeling. That's true. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because of the the way that my system likes to channel and let things flow through. It's almost like there's a backlog problem that happens where I end up with a lot of writing that I would like to share in some way, but, you know, like I have to kind of refine it or, you know, need some like shape and form to be shared in. And so the Oracle deck, there's been something really profound about letting them be poems, you know, letting them be these specific kind of card beings and then revisiting them. And that, you know, writing that was originally this kind of channeled flow and then slightly refined into poems is revisited. Not that they're answers to the universe or they're like particular, you know, things that are always, they're they're not really special, but the durational process of continuing to engage with them has created this intimacy with them that I love. So it's been fun to like start with something that was just complete kind of channeling and like go to this kind of continual returning. I love that you brought channeling down to earth in a much more mundane way and relating it to just being in relationship rather than having to channel Mm -hmm. something profound all the time. Oh, yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, that feels really true. Yeah. Okay. I am now going to kind of drop in to the field of our conversation and all of the beings who are hanging out with us as we're having this conversation. Okay, so this card is Mother. And the painting on the card is this searing, luminous blue color with streaks of silver white. Wherever you go, you go through me. I draw you into trust and blessing. I hold you in the sacred. Bear your hollowness for my flow. Listen to my river. I will carry you there. The deeper river that is always underneath it all. Listen to the ripples. Close your eyes and lean into the place where energy ripples out. Feel the sound waves vibrating from your presence beaconing between shadow and life. I love that. That feels like exactly what we've been talking about. Yep. And putting it into another language. Yeah. The mother, like the mother of the 10,000 things from the Tao, from which everything arises, just as she clearly stated at the very beginning. Mm 
Yeah, I don't think we stop needing wombs after we're born. I think there's still an energetic process of needing those spaces inside of which to coalesce, where we're held by the wider field. And there's also those spaces in which things can become more concentrated and potent. Yeah, which exist all around us and within us everywhere, like the nature of the web. Yeah. And we are the portal, able to access any of it at any moment. This often happens, especially with the moments when nature beings have spoken either to me or through me. I'm still being with metabolizing the nutrients of that. The only medicine for the place of aching is to nestle your body into the shape of the absence. Make your body the prayer that resonates from a depth of soil. Become the portal back to home. Could you put that term absence into a greater sense of context for us? I don't even know where it came from in my system, but it just sort of showed up this term, the shape of absence. And it feels really true that that's part of what's happened to our people is the lack of nutrients and the absence of the ability to perceive the support that's present already. That itself is a forming force that has a gravitational energy to it. I don't know. Is there anything else that you feel moved to talk about? We've talked about so much and it's been so wonderful. I really enjoyed this too. Yeah. This has been, thank you so much for this gift. This is like the first conversation about this project and the thesis outside of talking to my advisors about it. Yeah, I felt really the kind of space that you invite and the listening I very much resonate with. It's felt like a, a space in which some things could be spoken into that, that need a kind of dropping in quality. Yeah, a mutually created space. Yeah. Yeah, and you write about the space in between things and everything. And, and I think, again, that doesn't that relate to the deep silence that contains everything? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think we're playing with it, you know, is that the absence and presence, emptiness and fullness, hollowness, and, you know, like, it's about perception. Yeah. You know, the membrane between different kinds of sensing. Right. The gates can shut things out and they can welcome things in. Yeah. And then it's not bad. You know, that's the other thing is what an incredible gift to have these nervous systems and these perceptual systems that are able to gate to protect us so that we can feel like, you know, whatever allowings of survival have happened because of the gating process. Yeah. Honoring what we most deeply need, whatever it might be, regardless of, of what anybody else's experience might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have a website that you would like to share with us so people can find out more about your work? Yeah, my website is earthpoetedgeweaver.com. And I'm starting, hopefully in the next month or two, I'm going to start a substack to start to share the writing of the thesis as I'm working on it and working on creating the book. And I'm also gently starting to do some different facilitation group explorations, which will be on my website also. 
And give your website again. EarthPoetEdgeWeaver.com. Well, Shante, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation, and we'll be in touch. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for the space and the deep listening. And be well. You too. That was Shanti Sojourn Zenith. She's an earth poet edge weaver, attuning to primordial nourishment through the nervous system, creative expression, and relationship to wider ecosystemic bodies of support. Her practice weaves together learnings from somatics, animism, constellations, poetics, field perception, clowning, grief ritual, and systems intelligence. She offers group and one-on-one sessions and consulting through her website, earthpoetedgeweaver.com, and is currently completing Long Body Prayers, a book of eco-poetic essays co-created with the oracular guidance of ecological beings and deep-time ancestors. That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>